Good morning. My name is Ethan, as Elliot said. I'm the kids pastor here. And this morning we are in a series called Significant Other. So in the series, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about the topic of gender. Our guide has been Genesis, the first three chapters in Genesis, which kind of tell the creation story, the story of Adam and Eve. And we've seen here that there are two big ideas that lay the foundation for what the Bible has to say about gender. So those are found in Genesis 1, verse 27. I'm going to read that for us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So at the core of who we are, there are these two foundational realities that we see here. The first of those is that we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. And this means a lot, but our summary statement is that it means that we need God. We weren't created to do well without God, and we do not do well without God. Then the second reality, it's built on the first reality, and that is our gender. We are male or female. We've already said a lot about what that means earlier in this series, but at its core, what that means is that we need each other. Male and female, they need each other. And today, we're going to turn our attention to conflict. So both genders, they need each other, but it's no secret that when men and women come together, especially in the context of marriage, the sparks can fly. The sparks can fly, and that can be a good thing, can be a really good thing, or that can be a bad thing, can be a not-so-good thing. The, uh, the first time that I ever saw my wife was actually right here in this room. I was sitting kind of in the, in the back row, and I saw my wife. She walked down, and she sat kind of up here near the front. And let me tell you, first spark right there. First spark. I remember seeing her walk down, sit over there, and I distinctly remember thinking, I am going to meet her after this service. And so I'd like to say that I paid a lot of attention to the service, to the message, and that is not true. Um, I did not. I did pay attention, just not to the message. Um, And so after it was over, she was kind of standing in the back over there talking to some friends. And I thought, okay, well, here I go. I'll go go meet her. And so I didn't know how to do that. Um, And so I ended up actually walking past where she was back and forth. Six times I walked past where she was before I finally met her. And then when I did meet her, more sparks. There were more sparks when we actually had our first conversation, which is great. Without sparks, we wouldn't have met. We wouldn't have dated. We wouldn't have gotten married. And our marriage, it wouldn't be the joy that it is for both of us today. So sparks can be a really good thing. We've been married now for six years, and we've continued to experience the good kind of spark. But we've also learned a thing or two about the not-so-good kind of spark. And that's the spark that flies with conflict. So that looks different with each couple within each marriage. Some, Some couples are yellers. If your neighbors are in this category, then you probably know it, especially if you have thin walls. If you are in this category, then your neighbors probably are aware of it pretty well. Others aren't so much yellers. They more go for the zinger. They, they kind of go for the jugular with their words and really try to stick it to their spouse with, uh, with the right words. Some manipulate. Others, uh, they just kind of withdraw and, um, and do the, the silent treatment tactic. That's where my wife and I fall. We both kind of fall into that tactic when we have conflict. We withdraw from the other and kind of punish with, 
with silence. So, but regardless, regardless of the approach, one thing that all forms of unchecked conflict have in common is that just like a spark, it has the capacity to cause a significant amount of damage. And this is something that we saw in a very real way. Uh, less than a year ago, it was when our church was sending support to one of our sister churches who are up near in, in Chico, which is near Paradise, California, as they dealt with the aftermath of one of the just most devastating wildfires that our state has, has ever seen. In that fire, there were 14,000 homes that were destroyed. And, and what, what was the reason for that? Why did it happen? Well, it, it happened for several things. One, there was obviously dry brush this, this time of year last year. Then there was humidity and, and or low humidity and wind. But it all started with sparks from power lines. And then the result of that was that an entire city was just wiped off the map. And if you've been paying attention to the news over the weekend, then you know that that's, there's more of that going on right now in our state. There's, this is it's just a normal thing for this time of year in California. What's going on right now isn't quite the magnitude of those pre- that previous fire last year, but it's still significant. And so not every marital conflict results in wildfire-type devastation. But we would be wise to not underestimate the amount of damage that can result over time when that conflict in marriage goes unchecked, when it's not given attention. Marriage is really a critical part of what God has set up for his plan for impacting the world. It's a critical part of God's plan for building up the church. And it's also a very important part of his plan, the the crucial piece of his plan for raising children to become godly adults. And so when marriages are threatened by unresolved conflict, really every single layer of society is affected by that. At the top of that list, though, at the top of the list of those impacted, at the top of the collateral damage list, is definitely the next generation, the children. And so this morning, our objective is to learn from God's word. We want to learn from God's word about how to handle conflict. And the examples that we're going to look at will specifically pertain to marriage but the principles, or the, the examples we use will pertain to marriage, but the principles are not exclusive to marriage by any means. The principles that we're going to look at today apply to conflict in any kind of relationship. And so as we seek to learn from God's word about conflict, I just want to ask the question, why is it that we fight? Why do we fight in the first place? And to find our answer, we're going to look back at that story of Adam and Eve in the garden We see here the first time that a husband and wife, and really any two people, experience conflict. They find themselves at odds with one another. But before they arrive to the point of conflict, we see that they, uh, just like a fire, their, their conflict has a fuel source. So where there's no fuel, obviously there's no fire. And the same is true with conflict. Where there's no fuel for conflict, there is no conflict. And for Adam and Eve, the fuel came when each of them decided that they were going to put their desires first. Each of them decided, I'm going to put my desires first. Now, they had clear instructions from God and uh, pretty, pretty liberal instructions. They were to enjoy the fruit of all the trees in the garden except for one. There's just one that was off limits. That was the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And then the serpent comes along and presents himself to Eve, and he's got a message. And his message basically challenges God's trustworthiness. His message is, God is holding back the best stuff from you. God's holding back the best stuff. If you want 
what's really good, you've got to reach out and you've got to take it. And then we read the woman's response here in Genesis 3.6. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So Eve desires the fruit. She desires the, the wisdom that comes with that and she eats. And then you've got Adam. What's going on with Adam? What are, what are his desires here? One, it's interesting to note he wasn't off somewhere in the garden. He wasn't in another corner of the garden when this took place. He was right there with his wife. And so what were his desires? It could be that uh, he just had the same desires as his wife. He also wanted that knowledge, that, um, that wisdom that would come with the promise of the fruit. Or it could be that he had something else going on, that he just wanted to not rock the boat in his marriage. And you've, you've heard the, the phrase, a happy wife is a happy life, right? That could have been what's going on there in Adam's mind. I just don't want to rock the boat. And uh, so, but whether, whether it was the, that he was after the, the fruit and the wisdom that would come with it, or whether he was just trying to keep the peace in his marriage, it's very clear that Adam was also putting his desires first. And this fuel behind the conflict for Adam and Eve, it's not unique to them. That's been the same fuel behind every conflict since. Take a look here at what James 4.1 says on this topic. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Which is the same question uh, we're asking this morning. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the fuel behind every conflict is something that we want. And one thing that adds just an extra charge of dynamite onto the conflict that we experience in marriage is that we tend to have very high expectations for the amount of happiness that we're going to receive from that, from that marriage, from the other person in that marriage. We view our marriages primarily as a means of achieving our own desires. And we really don't approach any other relationships like this, at least not to the degree that we do in marriage. We don't necessarily articulate it, but when it comes to marriage, we think, I think this person just might be the key to unlock, unlocking a new level of personal happiness for me. And that's really what drives us, what makes us get married and, um, and view our spouses that way. So rather than view our marriages as a gift from God to help us accomplish his work, the work that he has for us to do, instead we view our marriages primarily as a gift from God, essentially to, to make, make us happy. And when two people bring this mindset to the table that marriage is about me and me being happy, then if you just think about that, it's not surprising that conflict in marriage could be so explosive. When I was a kid, every January, my family would take our old Christmas tree from that year, and we'd take it out to the burn pile. I lived in kind of northern California where we had a burn pile. And so we'd take our tree, we'd put it out there, and, uh, and we'd, that's what you do on a burn pile, you burn it. <laughs> and so uh, it was just, it was, it's, a, it's an amazing thing if you've never seen it to see how quickly one of those trees just lights up and is consumed and gone very quickly. And so when I think about fuel for a fire, my mind, it automatically goes back to those old Christmas trees in the burn pile. The more and more that we attach our hope for happiness to a particular person, the more and more our marriages begin to resemble those trees in the burn pile that are just sitting there they're waiting to ignite. But fuel is not fire. Fuel is not the same thing as fire. Fuel is potential fire. Fuel requires a spark to actually become fire. And so in the same way, seeking my desires first 
in and of itself, that's not conflict. It's potential conflict, to be sure, but it's not conflict. It requires an event to actually trigger it and spark that conflict. So let's go back to James and see what that event is. James 1, the next verse, uh, or 1-2 says, You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. So the spark that ignites conflict is unmet desires. Why do you quarrel and fight, James says? Well, it's not because you want something. It's because we want something and we cannot get it. When both parties involved in a deal are getting exactly what they want, what they expect out of that deal, everyone is is generally pretty happy. But when you want something and you can't get it, now that's when the fight actually begins. My wife and I, we, we struggle with this. We encounter this anytime that one of us gets sick. So if you'll bear with me here. Six years ago, six years ago, we stood on the stage. We actually got married right in this spot here. We stood on this stage and we promised to love each other in sickness and in health. And we really meant that. A lot of you were here. You, you bore witness to the fact that we said that to each other. We said it. We, we really meant it. But now, we've got four little kids, four little kids involved. Now, every time that one of us gets sick, it actually creates a lot of work and a lot of trouble for the one that isn't sick, for the healthy one. Whatever Andrea's plans may have been for an evening, if I come home and I'm sick, and she can pretty much forget about those plans. If Andrea is sick over the course of a weekend, it doesn't really matter if I was hoping to relax, watch some football games. It doesn't matter if I was wanting to, you know, get some stuff done on a to-do list. I'm going to be taking care of the kids and taking care of a sick wife instead. It's amazing how when the things that we want are blocked, even when it's no fault of the other person, that's enough to spark that conflict. Catching the flu is hardly a malicious act. I don't think that my wife catches the flu intending to pick a fight with me, but that's enough to set off a war of the wills. So if you think back just to the most recent conflict that you may have had with your spouse, maybe it was this morning, maybe it was another time, or if if you're unmarried, think back to the most recent conflict that you've had and just ask the question, what was it that I wanted but was prevented from getting? What was it that sparked that conflict? As long as life is full of desires and as long as there are disappointments or, or um, life doesn't meet our expectations, we're going to need to navigate conflict in relationships. And that means each of us, both parties involved, doing their part. In, uh, in 1950, there was a wildfire in New Mexico. And so to escape that wildfire, there was a small black bear cub and it climbed up a tree just to try to get away from the flames. So it actually survived, but it did burn its feet in the process. Later on, it was, it was rescued by some forest rangers. They rescued it, and they named it Hotfoot Teddy, which I suppose is appropriate. Shortly thereafter, Hotfoot Teddy was renamed Smokey Bear, which is probably what most of us know him as. So he's named Smokey Bear after the popular cartoon mascot of the Forest Service. And then over the past 70 years, he's been the face of wild wildfire prevention in North America. His message is a very simple one. His message is, I'm sure you know what it is, only you can prevent forest fires. 
It used to be forest fires. Now it's changed to wildfires. Only you can prevent wildfires. And I love this picture of him here. I think he looks kind of like the Uncle Sam of the animal kingdom. Just <laughs> only you. Not a bear you want to meet in the woods. Um, when I was a kid, I actually remember being pretty confused by this message. I didn't really get what it was talking about. I remember it thinking, I think that Smokey seriously overestimates my ability as a kid <laughs> to prevent fi- forest fires. But now that I look back on it, I actually realize, oh, that was a pretty clever campaign that they had going on. The campaign, basically, it's communicating that each person can take personal responsibility for fire safety. That's the real idea. So I can't control you. I can't control the weather conditions. I can't control lightning strikes. I can only control me. I control my habits. I control what I do. And this is actually similar to what it's like addressing conflict in marriage. If I were to ask you, if we were to kind of maybe take a poll or, or each make a list of things that we think in our marriages would reduce the conflict that we have significantly, then I, I suspect that we would find two things on our lists. The first thing would probably be circumstances that we really can't change that much. So for example, my wife and I would have less conflict if we didn't have kids or if we never got sick. Nothing we can really do about those things. The other thing that I think would be on our list would be something that you would like to change about your spouse. If she would just stop doing this, if he would just start doing this, then that would be the thing that would rein in, that would really help rein in the conflict in our relationship. But if two people are going to manage conflict in their relationship, it's not going to be because they figured out how to fix the other person. It's going to be because each of them begins to do their own part, to do their own responsibility. So how do you put out, how do you extinguish, how do you do your part to extinguish conflict in your marriage, in any relationship, really? What do you do? Our usual attempts to extinguish conflict center around the idea, the false idea, that winning the fight is the best way to end that conflict. You know, we, we, we approach it as though we think, if I could just make my point a little bit better, if I could just make him see, if I could just make her understand what I'm trying to say, maybe if I just raise my voice a little bit more, then that will help me get my point across and end that conflict. Which, when you hear me say that out loud, it sounds kind of comical. It sounds kind of funny that that would be actual strategies that we choose. But we do. We choose those strategies all the time. And we don't do it because we sit down and we think, okay, what would be the best way? We just reason in our minds. What would be the best way to end this conflict? I think yelling is the key. I think that'll do it. I think that's what's going to finally resolve this conflict in our marriage. We don't do it because of reason. We do it just because it's intuitive. It comes very naturally to us. In the same way, that if you had a grease fire in your kitchen and a glass of water, it would be very intuitive to grab that glass of water and throw it on your grease fire. But in the same way, that actually makes the problem a lot worse. Take a look at what happens in the kitchen when that, when that occurs. Now here's what happens when you put water on. Trying to win an argument, it may be an unintuitive strategy for ending 
conflict, but it really just makes the problem so much worse, and it doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics to realize that. If winning the argument, then, isn't the solution, then it might seem that the solution is to put my spouse's desires first, and then my desires second. And, and that is, that's a good thought, but it falls short. It falls short because when two sinful people marry each other, then going with the other person's desires is not always a safe bet. Consider how that would have worked out in the Garden of Eden with Adam. What if that's what Adam had done? Would he have been, been any better off setting his desires aside and going with Eve's? No, he would have been in the exact same situation. If he had prioritized Eve's desires, he would have just been surrendering to that maxim, a happy wife is a happy life, which, as we've seen, is just a more passive way of seeking his own desires. The solution is not to win the argument. The solution is not to put your spouse's desires first. It's to put God's desires first. God's desires first. To figure out what God wants in a situation and to align my actions with that. Unfortunately, that is not the normal approach. That's not the usual way that we go about things. The usual way that we go about things, it starts with my desires. That's at the top of the list. Once that box is checked, then I can turn my attention to my spouse's desires. And if he's happy, she's happy, okay, now we'll consider what God has to say. And if he has something to say, that doesn't conflict with priority number one, which is me, or priority number two, happy wife, then okay, now let's hear him out. Now let's hear what he has to say. So in this standard hierarchy of desires, God's will is just a mere afterthought, if it's even a thought at all. And James speaks of this. He addresses this in the next verse after what we've already read. He says in verse three, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So in this hierarchy, even when we do go to God, it isn't because we want to understand, we want to really know what his will is so that we can get in line with that and do it, whatever it might be. Instead, we kind of approach him like Santa Claus. We approach him like a child's letter to Santa Claus. It's, our prayers are like a list of things that we want, maybe reasons why we think we've been good enough to deserve them. But there's another approach. There's another approach, and it shouldn't surprise us that God's ways actually turns this hierarchy upside down. It flips it on its head. It begins with God's desires. What does God say about this? What does God have to say? What does his word have to say? How does his word speak to what is going on here? Next, it considers my spouse's desires, and what can I do that will really serve my wife? How can I really help my husband? Then lastly, it considers my desires. And there is nothing wrong with having desires. That's not a bad thing. And there's nothing wrong with clearly communicating those desires to your spouse. It's actually a really healthy and helpful thing if you can clearly communicate your desires to your spouse within your marriage. Where we get off track, though, is when we fail to place my desires in their proper priority, in their proper place. When we place them first and we're willing to go to bat for them, we place them first, and we're willing to fight tooth and nail to make sure that they happen. A common scenario that occurs in my marriage, this happens maybe 12 times a year. It's probably similar for most people. My wife tells me of some kind of commitment that she has the opportunity to make. And so maybe it's just like a, a one-time thing, 
or maybe it's something that she has an opportunity to commit to that'll be every single week for the whole year. Either way, we've got a decision and we've got to make that decision. And it usually goes one of two ways, one of these two ways. The first way, what do you think my initial thought is? My initial thought is, what impact is this going to have on me? How is this going to interfere with my plans? Basically, what I want to more or less get nailed down is how much of a hassle will this be for me? And I might not say that out loud, but I am my top priority. If it looks like the commitment is going to interfere with my plans, okay, that's enough to set off that spark and begin the conflict right there. On the other hand, though, if it looks like it's not going to demand too much from me, then I'll move on to my next question. My next question is, what do you want to do? I'm okay, so what do you want to do? And if she does, if she wants to do the thing, then great, doesn't impact me. If she doesn't want to do it, that's also great, doesn't impact me that way either. Finally, we'll go on from there and we'll maybe give God what God has to say, a courtesy afterthought. That's the final step in the process. The second way that this can go is that we actually start by asking, what does God have to say about this? That's our beginning point. And from the, you know, there, there's no verse that says you should or you shouldn't commit to volunteer for, for such and such, but we'll go to God's word and we'll try to figure out, well, what are, the, what are the principles? From what we know about the assignment that God has given us right now in this stage of life, does this opportunity, does it contribute to that mis- mission or does it distract from it? And then depending on the situation, it may be that we've actually got a fair amount of flexibility in that decision after we've sought God's will. And if so, then we can go ahead and move on and we consider, consider her desires and, and my desires, what, I, what she wants, what I want. Or it might be that we get very clear direction from God's word about what he wants. And if that's the case, then each of us has the task of aligning ourselves under God's will and getting on board with that. And that is not an easy thing to do. And I don't want to make it seem like it's an easy thing to do. It requires a lot of trust to say, God, I I know that what you want and what I want are different in this situation, and so let's go ahead and do what you want. It requires a lot of trust, and it's difficult, but we have a God who is trustworthy, who has proven himself trustworthy time and time again. So when two wheels clash and sparks are flying, the extinguisher, it's not about who's going to win the argument. It's not even about what kind of compromise we can come to. It's about each individual asking the question, What are God's desires here? And then aligning themselves with that. Now, the reality is that it's great, you know, if if you and your spouse are both on the same page, you both want to align with God's desires, that's a great thing. The reality is that there are many who are in situations that look kind of like this, where we've got God's desires, and you might do your part to align with God's desires, but your spouse just really isn't interested in moving in that direction. And if you're a man in this situation, then your challenge is going to be to not be like Adam, but to stand up in your family for what God says is right. Ultimately, you're going to take a stand for something, and you need to decide, like Adam, will you actively or passively stand for your own desires, or will you actually do what he failed to do? And will you stand up and with gentleness and kindness stand up for what you know God's desires to be? Now, if you're a woman in this situation, then your challenge is to not be like Eve, but to draw your husband toward God instead of push him away. I know of many men who are here today, many who are in this room, who are walking with God and and a part of this church, in part because 
their wives began to follow God and align themselves with God's will. And those men will tell you that what they saw in their wives, the change that they saw over time, was very attractive to them. And it drew them to check out this Jesus thing. Or it drew them to give the Bible serious thought, serious consideration for maybe the first time. But just like husbands need to stand up for God's ways with gentleness and with kindness, so also it's the gentleness and the kindness of wives that can draw their husbands toward God. Now, Eve's obedience doesn't guarantee Adam's obedience. But when she is aligning herself, her, her desires, herself with God and his desires, she's doing her part. The second thing that we can do to fight the fire of conflict is to maintain a defensible space. In California, especially in rural areas, we're familiar with signs like this one up there, encouraging homeowners to create and maintain this defensible space around their home. The idea is that as clutter, as brush and debris piles up, accumulates within the certain radius of your home, the less likely your home is to survive a wildfire. So it's called being firewise because it's actually an amazingly effective strategy for defending against a fire. Take a look at this home here. Everything around this home is just burnt to the ground, burnt to a crisp. But because the owners maintained that defensible space, their home appears to be just completely fine, hardly touched by that fire. And so the way to create and maintain a defensible space in your marriage is by practicing quick forgiveness. Quick forgiveness. And where quick forgiveness is lacking, it allows for hurt after hurt to just pile up. Marriages, they're, they're rarely taken out by a single conflict, a standalone event. When a marriage is wiped out, it's usually because of all the debris that has gone undealt with and accumulated around the walls of that marriage over the course of years. And so when a fight comes along, it's fueled by much more than just the present conflict, the present topic at hand. Instead, it's fueled by all the hurts of all the past conflicts that have gone unforgiven. And there are two ways that we need to be quick with forgiveness. The first is that we need to be quick to extend forgiveness. We need to be quick to extend forgiveness. And unfortunately, we tend to not be quick to extend forgiveness. Instead, we tend to be quick to accuse. This is what Adam did. Take a look at Adam here. We're going to look at Genesis 3, 11 through 9. Adam and Eve have sinned. God's come looking for them. And this is what we read. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So Adam and Eve sin, and God comes looking to hold Adam accountable. And then do we see Adam kind of rise up? He's already sinned, but do we see him at least come up and accept responsibility for what he's done? Well, let's take a look. We'll see that that's not exactly what he does. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So instead, he points his finger at his wife. Adam's first reaction is to accuse his wife to get the attention off of himself, to shift that blame. Now, a verse that stands in sharp contrast to what Adam did here is 1 Corinthians 13.5. I think this is a really helpful verse, especially for marriage. It says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, if the key to overcoming conflict is being right and winning that argument, then it would actually make a lot of sense to hang on to those records, to keep the record of wrongs. 
The idea would be that we're going to need those records later in order to win an argument. So we better hang on to them. We better record them and file them well so we have access to them when we need them. Or maybe we can use those records. We can recall some of our spouse's wrong that will help get us off the hook, help provide cover for our own wrong. And this is, this is Adam's strategy. This is what he did. But love keeps no record of wrong. Love doesn't keep a tally. It doesn't track the score. It doesn't accuse. It forgives. And forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that there was no wrong. You can't forgive something that didn't actually happen. Forgiveness necessarily implies that wrong was done. So forgiveness is not about sweeping sin under the rug, but it does mean that we refuse to use that wrong against our spouse. We refuse to use it as leverage against our spouse. And this is what God did with us, exactly what God did with us. He chose to enact a plan to strike out the record of our wrong so that we could be forgiven and so that we could restore our relationship with him. Look at Colossians 2, 13, 14. It says, And you who are dead in your trespasses, God made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, forgiven us all our wrong, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled the record of our debt. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And he asks us to follow and do likewise. So not only do we need to do our part to be quick to extend forgiveness, we also need to do our part by being quick to seek forgiveness. Now, have you ever found yourself in what I'm going to call a forgiveness stalemate? By forgiveness stalemate, I mean a situation where you and your spouse are arguing and you know that you've done wrong, but you just don't want to be the first to admit that you've done wrong. Maybe you're responsible for 10% of the wrong in your opinion, or maybe it's one of those times where you know this one is this one's 90, 95, 99, maybe 100% me. I've been in those spots before plenty of times. But instead then of seeking forgiveness for your share of the wrong, you hold out and you hope that the other person is going to be the first to crack, the first to humble themselves and seek forgiveness. Now, extending, extending forgiveness definitely has its challenges, but the challenge, the big challenge for seeking forgiveness is humility because you can't seek forgiveness without admitting that you did wrong. And that requires putting the health of your marriage above your pride and seeking forgiveness. If you wait for your spouse to do their part before you do yours, then you're just going to be in that continual stalemate position. And that is not a spot that you want to be in. You don't want to hang out there for very long. While you're holding out for the sake of pride, hurt after hurt will continue to pile up until your marriage hits a point of crisis or until you decide to humble yourself, break the ice, and seek forgiveness. When I was a kid, we had dozens of pine trees, dozens of cedar trees around our house. And so, you know, creating an area around the house where it wasn't just a pile of pine needles was one of the chores that fell to me. And let me tell you, it was, it was a never-ending task. I never got to the point where I said, Mom, Dad, I got the last pine needle. <laughs> We're done. No more. Never got to that point. Left alone, shrubs grow, trees drop their leaves. It's in their nature. Debris piles up. It's just what happens. And that's why when it comes to maintaining defensible space, the name of the game is ongoing maintenance. 
It's about ongoing maintenance and giving it continual attention. And it's the same with marriage. I'm never going to reach the point in my marriage where I tell Andrea, you know what, I'm so glad that's the last time I'm ever going to have to ask your forgiveness. I'm glad that's over. No, keeping up, keeping a relationship clear of hazardous debris, that's an ongoing task. Really, it's a daily task. And the truth is that for every one time that I have to ask one of you for forgiveness, just know I have to ask my wife for forgiveness 10 times. But that's what it takes to protect a marriage. A marriage is a gift that is very much worth protecting. Marriage, it's a gift from God, and it's also a strategy through which he intends to accomplish a great amount of good by building up his church, raising godly children. And when we do our part to seek God's desires first and to be quick to extend forgiveness and seek forgiveness, then we position our marriages in a spot where we can receive the full extent of God's blessing and also where we can maximize the impact that our marriages do have on the world in building up his church and in raising that next generation. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you don't send us off by ourselves, that, um, that we are made in your image and that we have each other, God. And God, I just pray that um, in marriages and, and um, in all, all other relationships that we have represented in this room, that um, you would help us to honor you by really seeking your desires first within those relationships, that um, you would help us to do that even though it's very hard. You would help us to remember to do that in the times when we need it. I also pray that you would help us to be quick to seek and to extend forgiveness. Um, Please call that to mind in the times when we really need it most and help us to have the humility that we need to do your will even when it is very difficult. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.